Father God, we spent this morning worshiping you, being together, and seeking to encourage one another and to exalt Christ in our hearts, with our lips, with our songs, with our voices, with our bodies. We're thankful, God, for this time in your word now. And part of our singing, Lord, has been uh, with the theme of our devotion to you. And um, being such a great God and seeing what's pleasant to you, Lord, we want to uh, take that up and, and strive even further, Lord, to, to treasure Christ. So thank you uh, for this blessed time. Thank you for your word. I pray that you will accomplish your work in each of us by the power of your spirit and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. And it's been about a month or so, break that we've had. We left off, as you'll recall, in chapter 13, which was the Olivet Discourse. <laughs> the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus was teaching the 12 disciples about the end times and the signs of his second coming, of his return. We spent a number of weeks on the tribulation period, on the prophecies to Israel being fulfilled, and the abomination of desolation, the rapture, the, the return of Christ, and the millennial kingdom, even as we unpacked many of the issues related to eschatology. Here in chapter 14, we pick up the narrative and continue in the middle of Passion Week, and it's become known as the Passion Week, because it's when the betrayal and arrest and trials and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus occurs. A passion is from the Latin word patior, which means I suffer, or passus sum, which means I have suffered. So that's why it's called Passion Week. And the broad theme here in chapter 14, which is the longest chapter in Mark's Gospel, is the abandonment of Jesus. The abandonment of Jesus. After the plots of his enemies come to fruition, which lead to the many false trials and accusations from the Jewish religious leaders and the swaying of the Roman rulers and the population at large, who, by the way, less than a week ago were hailing him as the king. And then the twelve disciples themselves break rank and they abandon Jesus from Judas to Peter, they all scatter and flee. And this abandonment culminates, of course, at the cross, where Jesus dies utterly alone. He's condemned by Rome. He's rejected by his fellow Jews. He's deserted by his disciples and forsaken even by the Father. Okay, Mark 15, verse 34. The Messiah's hour had come. It was time now to fulfill the prophecies spoken of by the prophets, like Isaiah. As a sheep, silent before his shearers, he is accused, assailed, scorned, and suffers for the sins of many. So that's what's ahead in these next two chapters of Mark. Okay, Mark has 16 chapters, so we're getting towards the end. Today's text in Mark 14 causes us to consider our estimation of Jesus, our esteem of the Lord. And it seems to be continuing sort of a running theme for this year so far, and it was unintentional, and yet it's there. Because a couple Sundays ago I preached from a text from Philippians 3, part of which exhorted us to evaluate what our ruling passion is in this life, Right? And uh, it's like Paul expresses in Philippians 3, verse 8. Does this describe us? I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And last Sunday, for Sanctity of Life Sunday from Genesis 9, we considered the high value that God places on human life. And this is because we're made in his image and this is his perspective. And so do we value human life as such, knowing that God is the giver of that life and of life eternal in Christ? So as I was studying our text in Mark 14 this past week, this overlapping theme of what we value, 
Okay, the worth we place on different things just kind of came leaping out of the text once again. Okay, apparently, God wants us to continue examining ourselves. What is it that truly captures our heart's affections, our mind's attention, and our soul's aspiration? As I said a few Sundays ago, this is of utmost fundamental importance, um, at least in my view, and because all of the Christian life flows from that starting point, you know, our genuine affections and love for the Lord Jesus. It's like the source of where rivers come from. It usually it's from high places like mountains or hills, but sometimes it comes out from the foundations of the earth. Um, the point is, the, the, the devotion and love and affections that we have for Christ, that bubbles over and flows into the rest of our Christian life and our spiritual walk and our progress as disciples of Christ. So our sermon title today is Your Appraisal of Jesus. Your Appraisal of Jesus. Most of us are aware that appraisal means assessment or evaluation. So it's the act of assessing something or someone. And an appraiser is a person who determines or assesses the value of a house or a building, right? They give an appraisal of the price of that property or real estate. So what I want us to consider from our passage this morning is our appraisal of Jesus, your estimation of him. What is he worth to us? What is he worthy of? And perhaps especially compared to our appraisal of other things and people and pursuits, the worth that you and I place on those things. Our sermon text is Mark 14, 1 through 11. And I believe it's pointing out to us once again that Jesus is worthy of our wholly devoted faith and worship and love far over and above other things of great value. So um, before I read the text and ask you to stand, uh, don't stand yet, but I just want you to look at it with me. Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Okay, note the, the sandwich technique that Mark employs here. Okay, if you have your Bible, you can see the whole passage, right? In verses 1 and 2, okay, this is in current time, describing Jesus' enemies plotting against him. It's Tuesday of Passion Week, verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 to 9, it rewinds back to an incident that happened on the previous Saturday. This is the day before Palm Sunday, about four days ago from real time here. This incident, as we're going to see, is of the woman who anoints Jesus with that expensive perfume. And then verses 10 and 11 is the other side of the sandwich. Back to real time. And Judas is taking action to betray Jesus. Okay? So just have that in your minds. That's the way the um, gospel writer Mark has organized his account. And he did it in this fashion because it helps us to clearly see the stark contrast between the foes of Jesus and the faithful to Jesus. Okay? So um, let me read the text now. If you would stand with me as we honor God's word. That would be great. This is Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, And reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? This perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. 
For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Please be seated. Well, let's look at a few categories of people who appraise Jesus' worth so that you can assess your own appraisal of him. And we're going to we're going to go to the bread first, okay, the, the two slices of bread or toast, whatever you want to call it, verse, uh, points one and three. We're going to do points one and three first, and then we're going to save the meat for the last. Okay? So the first part is his foes, his foes. And uh, quick, by the way, parallel passages, okay? um, the accounts of the other gospel writers, uh, which are talking about the same events. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. And John, not one of the synoptic Gospels, but John writes in John 12, verses 1 through 11. Okay? And uh, I just want to make something super clear here, really quickly. But Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 39, um, that is a different incident from this one in Mark 14, Matthew 26, John 12. Okay? Um, Luke 7, verse 36, is a, a different woman um, and a different Simon. It's Simon the Pharisee. Okay? Different incident. So uh, just, just be clear on that. So our first category here is Jesus' foes. And to them, Jesus is worthy of murderous scheming. Murderous scheming. You see this in verses 1 and 2 and also 10 and 11 that I just read. Right? Um, This is their appraisal of him. And as I said before, verse 1 says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, which means this is Tuesday of Passion Week. Okay, And the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. Uh, We should understand that Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Festival of Unleavened Bread, those were very closely associated with one another. So much so that both terms were used interchangeably to refer to that same eight-day celebration which began on Passover. Technically, Passover was when the lambs were killed and the evening meal was eaten. So this is like technically Thursday night, which in Jewish chronology is considered Friday. This was a single day that happened first, 14 Nisan, sometime in March and April. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread or as Mark calls it here, just unleavened bread, followed immediately the day after Passover. And it lasted for another seven days. But the entire time could and was often referred to either as Passover or as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Both terms were used, just like in Luke 22, verse 1. Luke 22, verse 1 says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. Okay, Luke's describing the same time here. So it was two holidays with like a single celebration, okay, since they were just so closely related. And uh, we're going to explain a little bit more next week just uh, about Passover and, and all of that. But I want to get to the foes here, the foes, Jesus' foes. Verse 1b, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. Okay, these holidays, which... His holy days were only two days away. And it's at this time when the chief priests, the scribes, are out to get Jesus. And these are Jesus' arch enemies, right? We've been through the Gospel of Mark, so we know that. It includes the Pharisees. And they've rejected Jesus' teachings, his ways. 
They've been planning to do away with him for some time now, all the way back to Mark chapter 3. You remember after he healed the man with the withered hand uh, on the Sabbath? Mark uh, chapter 3 verse 6 says, The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. As we've seen throughout our time in Mark's gospel, they continued to look for ways to get Jesus into trouble, to trap him with various questions and accusations. But his hour had not yet come. Verse 2, for they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. This, this most heinous crime in all of history, and that's the way we need to look at it, folks, had to be done under the radar, in secret, private planning, stealthily, treacherously, whispers, because the Passover holidays in Jerusalem, there would have been a huge, huge group of people, huge amount of people from all over the place coming to the city. The Jewish leaders recognized that. Many would come from Galilee, where Jesus had many, many followers. You recall the Palm Sunday event once again, the crowds less than a week ago. So they were afraid that the crowds might cause a riot, a riot of the people, a mob scene. So their plot was to get him after the holidays. But of course, God was not on their timetable, was he? The time for Jesus to suffer and die had come. His hour had arrived. And all these events were according to God's timing and plan. So to explain about the foes of Jesus, for them, what is their appraisal of Christ? Well, to them, he was worthy only of death. And that's, that's murder. That's assassination. And to kill him, it says. Their hatred for him was such that they thought they were doing right. And they thought they were even righteous in their murderous scheming. For sure, I need to mention there were some of the leaders of the temple who wanted him out of the way because his teachings and actions were sure to cut in on their prophets, as we saw a few months ago, after Jesus condemned and cleansed the temple, right? There were definitely those religious leaders who were thinking along those lines. But along with that motive, all of them rejected his clear teaching and his clear revealing and his clear proclaiming of himself more and more and more as his ministry went on that he himself was the Messiah, the Son of God, that they must bow down and worship. And so, to them, he's not worthy to live. He must die. So I want to give a direct application to some who are here today. Everyone who has rejected Jesus and don't believe in him as their personal Savior and Lord, even this morning amongst us or listening on the live stream, this most directly applies to you. Your appraisal, your estimation, your view of Jesus is no better than these chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Jewish religious leaders. To put it bluntly, Jesus was worth nothing to them, less than nothing. And to put it just plainly to you, If you are an unbeliever today, refusing to submit to Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, that is your estimation of Jesus. He's nothing. He's nothing to you. And so the bottom line is that you must turn from that sin of rejecting Christ. Think about that. He may as well be dead and not the living Savior as he has claimed to be. You need to turn from your rejection of him, of your devaluing of him, of your demeaning of him, as if if he's not the Lord of the universe and not the Lord of your life. He is beckoning you to trust in him alone for the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And he, he says this, and it's both an invitation and a command. Hey, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. A burden with that weight of sin on your conscience, on your heart, on your shoulders. And he says, I will give you rest. And that is rest for your soul. That is peace with God. 
That is a, a right relationship with the living Savior, the Lord Jesus himself. And that is his promise. I will give you rest. So among Jesus' foes, who we have just seen in uh, the first two verses there, there's also the faker. Yeah, the faker. This is the one who is most infamous. To the faker, Jesus is worthy of ultimate betrayal. Jesus is worthy of ultimate betrayal, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. And when I uh, was studying, that, that phrase just kept jumping out at me. He was one of the twelve. Make sure that we know which Judas this is. And yes, it's the Judas who was one of Jesus' closest disciples. One of the twelve it's almost unbelievable that someone who was walking with and following Jesus so closely okay, for three years could turn out to be a faker, okay, a pretender. The one who was even in charge of the money box, okay, the treasurer, so to speak. And he was out for himself. If you want to turn with me for a moment to John chapter 12, which I said was one of the parallel passages. John 12, verse 4, is describing this very scene. It says, John 12, 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Verse 6, Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Okay. Um, he didn't care about the poor at all, actually. His concern was his own pockets. And so this was false pretenses that he was living under. It was all for his own selfish gain. And it's never helpful, folks, um, when your treasure is a thief. And so this led him to seek his own pathetic gain, born out of sin and greed, and he saw Jesus' worth to be 30 shekels of silver to betray him and to betray, to sell him down the river. We're going to talk uh, more about Judas as this Passion Week unfolds in the next few Sundays. But truly, this is the ultimate betrayal. And Jesus loved and taught and gave everything to this man as one of the twelve this man was so close to the Messiah, yet somehow he missed him. Think about John 13. Okay, I'm not going to read there. We're not going to go there. But John 13, Judas, Judas was there. He was receiving the loving and humble service of foot washing from the Lord. Of all people in Israel, in Jerusalem, of all people in the world, he was most privileged having closest proximity to the Savior, to divine truth, to the living Word, to the loving Lord. And yet, in the end, all Jesus was worth to him was 30 coins, yeah, the price of a slave. What irony in that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, how about uh, some application before we get to the meat here? Sometimes you hear of famous actors or actresses and their backgrounds. And a number of them come from, like, the Midwest or the South. Examples, Brad Pitt or Jennifer Lawrence. And it's surprising to hear that they grew up in Christian homes or at least had a Christian background. They went to church growing up only to forsake that upbringing for Hollywood and all its accompanying stuff and immorality. And when they're asked about their religion, the answer that, they can, that you can expect is, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. These poor folks turning away from Jesus is one thing. I don't know what their exact situation or story is, how strong their homes or churches or whatever were. 
and though it seems strong enough for them to mention when they're asked. But for anyone here who's been so privileged and so blessed by God okay, to grow up in the church, to grow up in Christian families, and maybe either of them not perfect, but where clearly Jesus is head and Lord of the place, perhaps like Judas, it seems to everyone around you that you have faith in God, that you have a right relationship with Jesus, that you're doing the right things, you're saying the right things, you're praying the right things, you're serving at church, you're going along with the program, and yet, deep beneath the surface, there's no sincere trust in God, no genuine love for Christ, and no light and life of the Holy Spirit. If that is the case, let me just tell you, just again, very plainly, you are in utter danger of committing the ultimate betrayal, turning your back on the Lord himself, following in, in literally the worst example of rejection in Scripture. May this be a wake-up call to you today, okay, to go to God on your knees, seeking his forgiveness, begging him for the gift of real faith, and just admit it. Admit that you've been pretending, you've been faking in your refusal to give up your fleshly desires to genuinely follow Jesus as he's called you to. May take this time today, this moment now. As Dave prayed earlier, may today be the day of your salvation. May God call you to repentance and faith and you submit yourself completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling you to that now. So let's look finally here at verses 3 to 9, okay, the meat of this Markin sandwich. And after what we've seen so far, it's like a, it's like a rose between two thorns. And it's like a, a pearl placed in between two ugly shells. Verses 3 to 9, we see the faithful. We see the faithful. Jesus, to them, Jesus is worthy of extravagant worship. Extravagant worship. And it says, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. As I already mentioned, Mark is rewinding back to the Saturday right before Palm Sunday. And... Again, John 12, verse 1 is helpful in verse uh, 1 and verse 12. I'm just going to read it for you. John chapter 12, the parallel passage there says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And then in verse 12, it says, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees, okay, Palm Sunday, right? So that's the next day. And went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So I'm just giving you the time marker once again, okay? So let's look at this glaring contrast. After such dismal pictures of Jesus' foes, we come to someone who is truly faithful to the Lord, this person sees Jesus as worthy of extravagant worship. We can break this part of the, the sandwich down into three ingredients, so to speak. Maybe this is a BLT, all right? So that's enough of that. But um, three, three little sections within this, this, um, this passage. Okay, so we have the display of extravagant worship, the display. We have the disapproval and the defense. Hey, I'll say that again at the end, but the display, the disapproval, and the defense. So as we consider the one who is faithful and the extravagant worship, uh, we see the display of that in verse 3. So while he was in Bethany at the home of the son of the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. And so we know when this takes place. Uh, I've said it a number of times already. And here we see where it takes place. In Bethany. And this is just a few miles east of the city of Jerusalem. Small town there. And it's at the home of Simon the leper. And just again, by the way, this particular Simon is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. He is Simon the leper, not the Pharisee from Luke 7. 
Okay, most likely is one of the thousands of people that Jesus healed during the course of his three-year ministry. And I say that he was likely healed of his leprosy because otherwise this gathering that's being described here was not allowed. It wouldn't be allowed according to the uncleanness laws uh, found in places like Leviticus 13. So it's possible that this dinner was kind of a thank you okay, to Jesus out of gratitude for healing him. So that's Simon, but who was this woman? Who was this woman? Back to John chapter 12, okay? Um, verses 2 and 3 uh, identifies this woman for us. And I'll just read it for you. It says, So they made him a supper there. They made Jesus a supper there. And Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound a very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Okay, so clearly, don't you love the Gospels? And you can put all this together and figure things out. This is none other than Mary, the sister of Mary, uh, of Martha and Lazarus. And the resurrected Lazarus, right? John chapter 11, resurrection of, of Lazarus. So this is the Mary who was sitting at the Lord's feet from Luke chapter 10, while Sister Martha was so busy and flustered and distracted and complaining about, about Mary to, to Jesus. And they're all at Simon the leper's house here, Martha preparing and serving, about to have supper together. Lazarus is reclining at the table with the Lord, and Mary decides to anoint Jesus. Okay, just a quick, by the way, apparently Martha has learned, right, from that previous incident when she was so distressed with those preparations and grumbling about her sister Mary, who was not serving, not helping. But then Jesus gently admonishes her and commends Mary for doing the best thing, right? Worshiping, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his word. Here in Mark chapter 14, and also that parallel passage in John 12 especially, Martha is still serving. She's making dinner, moving around, etc., but there's no complaining, no distress indicated at all. So I like to see this as good progress for, for Martha. But anyway, back to Mary. This is Mary who is with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. Pure nard, she broke it and poured it over his head. John 12, verse 3 again. He says, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Don't Mary's actions indicate such great love and devotion to Christ. Again, what a contrast with the others that we've seen in our text today. And it's like a blazing light offset by pitch darkness. All the gospel accounts describe these details. Okay, costly, how costly the perfume was. What an expenditure. Being pure nard, this oil from the nard plant, which was native to northern India, it was pure, meaning genuine, okay? not the fake imitation brand, but the real thing, the good stuff. And so it was very costly. Verse 5 says over 300 denarii. Okay, we know that one denarius was equal to how much? One day's wage for a common labor, right? So 300 was worth how much? Pretty much a full year, right? When you take out the Sabbaths and other holidays where people didn't work. That's um, a full year's worth of wages, a week's salary for a common worker. I mean, a, a year's salary for a common worker. So on top of that, she broke the vial also, the flask, this long-necked bottle made of alabaster, extracted from Egypt, which was expensive in itself. It was a fine variety of marble, which was used for storing and preserving costly perfumes and oils and ointments like this spikenard. Breaking that vial means it will no longer be usable and kind of indicates that she intends to just pour it all out on Jesus. She's not saving some of it for some other person or some other occasion. So the point here is that Mary's estimation of Jesus' worth was clearly priceless. She found her Savior to be worthy to be anointed with such precious, expensive, costly ointment. In wholehearted love and devotion to him, she expends it onto his head and his feet. 
and even wiping his feet with her hair. And this is humble, reverent, unashamed, extravagant, lavish worship. It's worth noting that all three times that we see Mary in the Gospels, and it's uh, Luke 10, John 11, John 12, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And here in Mark 14, understand that she was doing this in full display of a room full of people, a bunch of men. And normally in Jewish culture, a woman would not approach a man in this setting besides for serving food. But Mary was so devoted to her Lord and Master that she just needed to be next to him. And she, she loved him deeply, as was clear by her actions. She would have done anything for him. She was unashamed, not caring who saw or who heard. She was that devoted. And I wonder if that same thing could be said of you and me. Hey, why could Mary do such a, a wonderful thing for her Lord? Well, it's because she esteemed him so highly. She valued him so greatly. And she she treated him in this way because her appraisal of Jesus, of his value, trumped every other thing by far. Way more. And there was no comparison. When I ask, when was the last time your love and worship of Jesus was so heartfelt and sincere that the tears just came pouring out of your eyes at the thought of him, hey, whether it's in private, in public, in whatever setting. So we'll get to a little bit more of that, but um, the next part of this meet is the disapproval, verses 4 and 5. The disapproval of this extravagant worship. It says, but some were indignantly remarking to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? And John chapter 12 points out that it was Judas leading the criticism. Right? Verses 4 to 6. I read it before already. Matthew more generally writes the disciples. And here Mark says some. Some were indignantly remarking to one another. So it appears that the 12 were all to some extent griping about Mary's actions with Judas leading the way. You're representing the others. I thought it was interesting that for once uh, it wasn't Peter, right? Usually it's Peter messing up, but here it's Judas. And look, Judas and the others were not just mildly irritated at Mary. Hey, they, were, they were ticked off, hey, indignantly remarking to each other. It's collective anger joining in with Judas in his protest. So we've got to picture the scene. Hey, this, this makes Mary's devotion... Um, that much more striking when you try to picture this in your mind. Disciples, all 12 of them, murmuring against her and to one another, even scolding her. Okay, that word for scolding in the Greek, it conveys the idea of harshness, a displeasure and disgust. Okay, it's as if they were snorting and snarling at her in anger. And the tense of the verb indicates that they were doing it over and over. It wasn't just a one-time thing. Okay? Uh, R.C. Sproul says this, uh, the term uh, sharply is a vast understatement in the English. In a bullfight, when the matador taunts the bull, the bull paws the ground and his nostrils flare in anger. That's the image used here. These men were so angry with Mary for wasting the anointment that their nostrils were flaring in their criticism, end quote. And all this from men who should have known better. We've established from Mark's gospel that they believe that he is the Messiah, the Christ. And so James Edwards says, quote, their condemnation obviously demeans the woman and her gift. In asserting that there could be a better use for the money, however, they demean Jesus as well, whom they regard as unworthy of such extravagance. End quote. That's a good point to make. They're not just demeaning the woman, but they're devaluing and demeaning the Messiah. So surely they should have known better. And isn't it an awkward scene to, to try to picture? A marriage just lavishing and sitting at the Lord's feet, worshiping him, unashamed devotion, 
pouring out this oil, wiping his feet, even with her hair, while the twelve are getting angry about it, going on and on to, to one another, out loud, remarking to each other, and at her, what on earth are you doing? Don't you know how expensive that perfume is? What's wrong with you, woman? But Jesus said, Jesus, don't you love that? But Jesus said, and this is the best part, okay? The best part is the defense, the defense of extravagant worship, verses 6 through 9. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? Hey, basically, leave her be. What are you bothering her for? She's doing good. She's doing good to me. A good deed to me. And listen, the word that Jesus uses here for good is kalos. And it means that which is excellent, that which is surpassing or admirable or precious, especially good or commendable. In fact, in Greek, there are two different words for good. And Jesus uses the one that has the nuance of beautiful. Beautiful. The scholar William Barclay explains further, quote, There is agathos, and that's the other Greek word, and that describes a thing which is morally good. And then there is kalos, this Jesus' word here, which describes a thing which is not only good, but lovely. Okay, a thing might be agathos, good, and yet be hard or stern or austere or unattractive. But a thing which is kalos is winsome and lovely with a certain bloom of charm upon it, end quote. It's a, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Hendrickson says, Jesus calls what she did a beautiful thing, and such it was indeed, unique in its thoughtfulness, regal in its lavishness, and marvelous in its timeliness. Next, the Lord gives his reasoning, his rebuttal, to the disciples' snarling disapproval. He says, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. That's a different word for good there, by the way. But you do not always have me. Unfortunately, uh, these words have been used wrongly by some in the church to justify their lack of compassion and care for the poor. That's not Jesus' point here. Let's be clear. What he's saying is, it is good to help the poor, to give to the poor, to use resources and money for the poor, and you should do good to them. But the thing is, there are always going to be poor people in this world that you can serve and minister to and help, but you won't always have me in this world. Okay? That's the point. And, and why, why won't they always have him? Well, it's because he's going to die on the cross in a few days. <laughs> um, his days alive on this earth are numbered. They're down to their very last opportunities to be with him and to show their love and devotion to him. And I hope we realize that this is yet another statement of Jesus's that, that would be considered extremely arrogant, egotistical, even narcissistic, to utter from the lips of anyone else except for those of the Lord Jesus. I mean, can you imagine okay, me, lowly pastor here, saying, hey, church, listen, I know we have like uh, 50000 in our savings account, and we could spend it on helping out the poor, reaching out and ministering to them, but you know what? On second thought, you're always going to have the poor with you. They're always going to be around, but... You're not going to always have me, folks. I got like maybe 30 years yet if I'm blessed. So this would obviously be beyond outrageous and absurd for anyone else. But from Jesus' mouth, we understand and affirm completely. He alone is the worthy Son of God. So he defends Mary's actions, enlightening these men once again of his coming death. And the time is short. Time is very short for them to be sitting at his feet. And so he continues his defense in verses 8 and 9. He says, She has done what she could. 
Hey, what an incredibly assuring thing for the Lord to say. Right? Again, picture of Mary with me uh, at, at that moment. After being on the receiving end of these 12 men who are haranguing her, berating her, and then for the Lord to speak on your behalf and simply state this, she has done what she could. In other words, she, she held nothing back. Right? Nothing. It's only in Mark's account that those words of Jesus are found. They speak of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that Mary seizes and Jesus approves of. She did her best. It's the best she could do. And to punctuate that, he says, She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And most commentators indicate that it doesn't necessarily mean that Mary was consciously aware of what she was doing. It doesn't seem likely that she knew fully that Jesus was going to be crucified and die in a few days. Although, as one who was so faithful and so devoted and always at his feet, maybe. Yeah, I think it's possible, possible at the very least. But it's also possible that she was not fully aware of what she was doing. Yet, she was expressing her faith and heart and love for Christ. Okay? Um, the other example of someone who said something or did something, uh, yet unaware of the full ramifications and truth of what they said was Caiaphas, right, in John chapter 11, saying he shall die for the, for the sins and um, not fully understanding what he was saying, but what he was saying was true there in John 11, verses 49 to 52. We don't have time to go there. But to whatever extent she was conscious of the significance of what she was doing, Mary's extravagant act of worship became a symbol which anticipated the Lord's death and burial. And he closes, Jesus closes by saying this in verse 9. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And whenever and wherever the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and taught throughout the world, as recorded in the New Testament accounts, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, specifically here, Matthew, Mark, and John. The Lord guarantees that Mary's act will be included. And it's because it's been preserved in Scripture. Hey, by the way, this is a, a short case for expository preaching, right? Teaching through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, which is part of what it is to exposit the Word. It ensures us that we're going to get to verses like these, right? And this passage eventually. So, um, anyway, I just love this from D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody writes, quote, I imagine when Mary died, if God had sent an angel to write her epitaph, he couldn't have done better than to put over her grave what Christ said. Quote, she hath done what she could. I would rather have, have that said over my grave, if it could honestly be said, than to have all the wealth of the Rothschilds. Christ raised a monument to Mary that is more lasting than the monument raised to Caesar or Napoleon. Their monuments crumble away, but hers endures. Her name never appeared in print while she was on earth, but today it is famous in 350 languages. We may never be great. We may never be known outside our circle of friends, but we may, like Mary, do what we can. May God help each one of us to do what we can. Life will soon be over. It is short at the longest. Let us rise and follow in the footsteps of Mary of Bethany. End quote. So as we close here, um, our, our pretty important and big significant lesson is this. Okay, even good things. Even great things of great value, okay, like helping the poor, can be, can be bad things if we prioritize them over the best thing. Yeah, I think that's one principle, one lesson we can learn from this passage. There are many examples, dear church family, um, in your own lives, in my life, of things that we prioritize, things we esteem highly, and it shows up in our checkbook. It shows up in our time spent. Um, if anybody has like, like phone stuff like we have for our kids, and it shows like the, the, the sites that you go to and how much time you've spent on them, 
It shows up in, in all of those things. And God has the record of, of everything, down to the last detail, to our thoughts and the meditations of our heart. If we prioritize any of those things over the best thing, we are devaluing and even demeaning the worth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you know your own examples far better than I do, but I want you to consider them deeply today. could be a person, could be a relationship, could be a goal, ambition, dream, career, whatever. Um, this quote is too good to pass up, so let me just give it to you. And I, I shared it with uh, my son, Philip, last year. He was going through a little thing. But um, C.S. Lewis says, quote, being in love is a good... I'm not saying he was in love, but... (laughs) Being in love is a good thing, but it is not the best thing. There are many things below it, but there are also things above it. You cannot make it the basis of a whole life, end quote. So you can put whatever um, thing that is for you. Okay? And uh, Corey Ten Bloom said, I hold on to things loosely because it hurts when God has to pry my fingers open to make me let go of them. And so let us consider our appraisal of Jesus this morning. And um, we definitely don't want to be found in the categories of foes or fakers, but let us be found faithful. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it seems like there's, there could be so much more said, but uh, we're thankful once again for the truth of your word and uh, just how it so applies to our lives in some, some way. And I'm grateful, God, to be able to bring it to our attention once again. And I pray, God, that you, by your spirit, would capture the affections of our hearts and Help us, make us even see Jesus for all his worth and all his beauty and all his excellence. And um, may we live our lives devoted and dedicated to him as we've seen from Mary of Bethany. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.